0: Welcome to Remotely Creative, a RimCab podcast where we talk to artists, designers, and wildcards about how they're surviving in the era of COVID-19 isolation. I'm your host, Rob Flattery. Greg Ellis is a creative production designer who has worked with a variety of performing artists, including Pretty Lights, Steve Aoki, STS9, and more. Greg Ellis, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, man, how's your uh, crazy summer going? Um my
1: crazy summer is going. <laughs> it's been a trial of errors for the most part and I think you know most people can attest to having um this weird dichotomy of too many options but also no real objectives, right? Totally. And so you know you can create work for yourself or you can create opportunity for yourself but where does it actually lead to and so for myself i've tried i don't know a lot of different things a lot of different things to eat up the time a lot of different ways to keep the creative juices flowing um started early in this quarantine uh existence uh live streaming a lot um i started a series called modern mythology that was basically an homage to my heroes in the music world. Um, and the You're concert Jerry Garcia, right? Oh, uh, I broke it up into sec into sets of three there. There's nine muses in Greek mythology. So I basically, there were three phases in each phase. There's three artists. So the first phase was past, present and future. And it was basically like, uh, let's call it like the, the Mount Rushmore, right? So it was Jerry Garcia, Trey Anastaggio, and then Derek Vincent Smith, pretty ones. Um, And in my mind, now, from a musical standpoint, right, there's obviously there's the easy connection that you make between Jerry and Trey, right? Lead singer, lead guitarist, bah, 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 jam band, so on some and so forth. But it meant more to me to make the connection with Derek to those other two in the sense of cultural and community responsibility. Um, What I mean by that is sort of like pretty lights evolved into what the Grateful Dead and what fish does and did for their fans. Um, and We kind of evolved into that new kind of existence where it was um, the jam band culture. Oh, totally. You know, So, you know, whether it's the, you know, the changing of the set list or the interaction with the fan base or these festival kind of experiences or all of these things that were happening and that I had always hoped would happen. And then as they began to, I was like, this is it. It's, we're living up to this wild expectation that I had 12 years ago of what pretty lights could be. Mm -hmm. And it, started to actually happen. Um, And so when I was doing the modern mythology thing, I was like, this is a subtle yet not so subtle way for me to kind of express that to people because um, a really interesting thing happened towards the end of phase one of Pretty Lights. As those last two or three years that we played before we took our hiatus, we stopped playing festivals. We were throwing our own. Um, and we started to lose a certain section of, a fan, of our fan base, the casual fan, for better or for worse. We weren't getting any new fans. We were losing some casual fans. The people who were seeing us at the hangout festivals and at the, at the uh, you know, even like the Bonaroos and, the, and those kind of things in, the, in uh, you know, that 2010 to 2015 time period, right? They were seeing us at festivals and they were loving it. And they're, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever, right? And when we stopped doing that, they stopped coming to see us. So they had no idea of the transformation that Pretty Lights was going through as a musical entity mm-hmm. from the producer track based uh, performance to bringing in the big band first, but then the Pretty Lights live band that became an actual jam band. Right. So many people have no idea that that happened. Um, and so again, the modern mythology thing and that trifecta was, was a, you know, a way for me to just kind of throw that notion out there to people to be like, Hey guys, I know you stopped paying attention five years ago, but this is what's been happening for the last few years. And it's going to continue to happen whenever that time comes that we do go back out there. Um, so that was, it was really, really important to me that I did that, um, for whatever reason, I have no idea whether it was just all the time on my hands, uh, or, you know, it was something that I'd been thinking about for a long time. The modern mythology concept had actually, uh, started sometime last year, I wanted to just figure out a way to start using all of my video art stuff to create art prints. Right. Um, Originally, it was just going to be abstract stuff, you know, cool squiggly lines with the, you know, whatever. (laughs) And uh, I just was never happy with it. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. This isn't something that people are going to spend 50, 60, $100 on a print for. Like it just, just isn't there. And it's one thing to be able to create uh, live in the moment the way that I have for most of my career. And to be impressive in its medium, it's another thing to transfer those concepts to a new medium and to look at this singular image over and over again and be like, is this actually pleasing to the eye or does it speak to me in some way? And I just wasn't there with it yet. So conceptually, the modern mythology thing was a means to an end because I could leverage these mythical musical figures who I've loved all my life Mm -hmm. as a way to find my voice in a new medium. And uh, so that's how it all very much, that's how it started, you know, in the, in the birth of it. And then when the quarantine thing happened, it evolved into a live stream experience. And then from those live streams, the artwork would be generated. So I took a live concert of each of the artists Run it through the synthesizers, spit it back out onto a video wall or a projector, live stream it out to the world, get in trouble by all sorts of copyright police because I'm using, you know, live footage that 10 other people have posted online, but for some reason I shouldn't be doing it. Anyway, it doesn't matter.
0: would um, <laughs> be the end of the live stream, and then apparently that is the way to break
1: copyright. Well, so here's the funny part. Uh, the Grateful Dead uh, didn't care.
0: Yeah, of course not.
1: They were great about it. They go, We're gonna add copyright acknowledgement in your video. So if you click on the YouTube video for the first modern mythology for Jerry Garcia, you will see Songless, 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 Song, 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 song written by Jerry Garcia, written by Bob Weir, blah 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 Copyrights. Boom. Good. the fish one doesn't exist because I'm partially an idiot. Very stubborn, but also the powers that be were a little um, overbearing, I I suppose. Uh, I pulled a Matrix audio concert uh, film that technically falls under fair use. Right. Um, Two minutes out of the, whatever, two hours Two minutes out of the two hours got flagged and me in my, you know, just ignorance, I guess, of the situation was like, well, this falls under fair use. The video aspect is transformative. The audio is a matrix recording, which technically under fish's rules is fair game. Um, They weren't buying it. (laughs) Even though I sent them the link to the source video that I had pulled off of YouTube Posted by a fan right. <laughs> wasn't right and they actually um, Had the video deleted and I had a 90-day ban on YouTube because of it Oh, wow over the two minutes that was flagged or had I just muted those two minutes. It would have been fine, but Just you live and you learn right? So it's all good. And then the pretty lights one Obviously I got clearance. I don't want that right. Right? right. So we do that and It was really incredible gratifying in its own ways, but for some reason, it just wasn't speaking to me the way that I had hoped. Um, When I started working on the actual artwork portion, that was very exciting, but once the artwork is done, what's next, right? So, started working on the Series 2 Modern Mythology, which uh, ended up being... Subtitled forefathers. So this one was a little interesting because it was kind of like if the first series is like, you know, you're the kings of music in a sense. Right. These guys are the ones who like
0: paved the way.
1: Well, not only paved the way, but they're actually the more meaningful ones to me personally. Oh, okay. Um, the first series was kind of an acknowledgement of the icons where this one was kind of like my personal like meat and potatoes guys, right? Like the, the guys that I listen to every day. I'll tell you right now in my journey of the Grateful Dead. And I think a lot of fans can attest to this. You fall in love with Jerry first, right? It takes time to understand Bob Weir's greatness. It takes time to develop uh, a taste for some of his songwriting uh, techniques. takes time to develop a taste for the way he plays guitar. <laughs> um, and so in the Forefathers series, it was David Gilmore, Bob Weir, and Frank Zappa. Now those three men, uh, Gilmore and Zappa specifically, have been a part of my musical journey since I was in, a teenager.
0: Uh-huh. Like,
1: they've been like the end-all be-all to me. I think from a songwriting standpoint, from a guitar playing standpoint, from a just presence, musical presence, um, those two men, while they both get so much uh, love and adoration, I also think that they're probably two of the more underrated guitar players. Because you always hear about Hendrix and you always hear about Eddie Van Halen or Clapton, but it's like, Gilmore? and zappa in my opinion on all of them in in, in so many ways because i mean that's that's that could be an entire podcast in its own right so we don't need to go down that road uh, but anyway so series two modern mythology I, I get through that now for whatever reason i still haven't made the prints from that series i've been sitting on the footage for damn near six months and uh one of these days I'll get to it and I'll release it and it'll be awesome. But, um, too, but that's how, what's that quarantine too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. quarantine. Let's, let's hope that never happens. Definitely. please. <laughs> um, but that's how I started quarantine. And then, and, and that, that mindset of just like, let's see where I can go with all of this time and opportunity. And I just started creating, uh, you know, Things to do and as I've gone on with that uh, I I, I kind of set those things down and then I worked on another video project and then I started a podcast and uh, I'm now production managing a festival style drive-in series in Atlanta so like I, I've been crazy busy and uh, it's been good um, you it's know
0: kind of busy right
1: yeah it's a different kind of busy it's a Weird kind of busy because there's no structure. Now, not to say that there was ever any structure in my life because that's <laughs> the furthest thing from the truth. But it's it seems more chaotic than it ever has before. And I'm not even traveling. Like, I feel like I don't have a grasp on anything around me. And it's kind of weird um, because I'm like – for so much of my life, it was like get in a van and go, get on a plane and go. You have a destination, you, go, you get to said destination, you do your performance, you go home. So even though you're coming and going, there's still a strange uh, sense of structure to it all, right? Not with this. Every day, everything changes so fast, right? Everything changes so fast. and. W- Uh, opportunities present themselves in these weird ways And and then there's this like well it'd be really cool if you did this but I don't have any money to pay you thing right now this is where it gets really tricky and like I am very sympathetic to this because we're all in the same boat as touring professionals and or performers and or artists right we all um we all benefit from an audience, right? If you can't do your job or your art form or your whatever in front of an audience, how do you make money? And so I would more often than not be like, don't worry about it. So then all of a sudden I'm creating work for myself and not getting anything back for it other than just being able to fill up some hours on the day. Um, But yeah, it's, it's been interesting and it's been exciting and challenging and frustrating.
0: Yeah. How, how do, um, what can fans do to support artists like you in the music industry right now? Like what can we do?
1: Um, you know, that's a tough one. So and now this is me being, um, uh, what's the right word for this? I don't know. I guess, uh, my own like weird generosity, I guess, of like, I feel a responsibility to give back to people because they gave so much to me over the years, right? So like, here's a good example. When I was doing those modern mythology streams, uh, when everybody else, and I mean everybody, was a putting Venmo donation links and this, you know, please donate. I refuse to do that. I had people sending me Venmo. Like they would find my Venmo and like send me and I would just be like, please don't do that. Like, I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this for my own good. And there will be a monetization of it down the road, you know? So like when I sold the prints, that was kind of like, you know, I'll make a decent enough amount of money off of this. It can kind of justify everything that led up to it. Right. Um, so like I've gotten creative in different ways on how I can generate some income. Um, you know, I work with a, a promotion company venue down here in Atlanta that kept me on a small, uh, like retainer or whatever. So I had some money coming in. Um, so I don't feel like the dire straits that a lot of other people do. And I guess maybe that's another reason why I've been generous with my time with some people. Mm -hmm. Um, It hasn't, the the money aspect hasn't affected me as much as it has a lot of the other people in our industry. And so I feel kind of, you know, like I'm not, I haven't asked for anything from anybody. You know, I would, I would prefer if you're going to donate or if you're going to support artists, find the ones that really need it. Cause they're out there. And they're making it known <laughs> so yeah
0: nice um so you know a lot of people know you as the laser shark um but you've got the new project that and i'll probably pronounce this wrong because i'm looking at it phoebus cartel or Phoebus? phoebus
1: phoebus no okay phoebus, uh, phoebus is the the greek god of light basically okay um, and it's actually it's a little historical experiment that most people don't know about. It 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 occurred during the turn of the century, in the early 1900s. Um, it was the first global um, example of planned obsolescence. So all of the major light bulb manufacturers. Now we're talking about Philips, Osram. Uh, and whoever else was there at the time, you know, early, I think, 1905 to 1910 or whatever it was, when they created the first mass-produced light bulbs, they did such a good job that they weren't making any money. (laughs) So they all met in Sweden or Switzerland or something, and it was dubbed the Phoebus Cartel. And all of the major manufacturers were like, we're going to kill the lifespan of light bulbs from whatever 5,000 or 10,000 hours down to 1,000 hours. So that way we can make more light bulbs and people will buy more light bulbs. And it literally set the world back almost 100 years because LED, because nothing had really ever changed in light technology from that. From that standpoint until LED technology became prevalent in the early early to mid 2000s. So I had learned about this whole thing um, at a lighting conference uh, a handful of years ago. And I'm looking around the room and we're talking about lighting designers, lighting professionals, like a lot of people who've who have been doing this for a very long time, all with this look of like, shock and awe on their face and also like dumbfoundedness. Nobody had heard of it. Nobody knew about it. I talk to people on a daily basis and they're like, what the hell is the Phoebus cartel? And it blows my mind that it one it's not talked about in schools in any regard. uh, But two, that like, even as we get older, it's just one of those things that like, it just got swept under the rug one day and never to really be like heard or seen from again. And so <laughs> the sound, the name of it, the Phoebus Cartel, I was like, this is such a cool sounding thing. Oh,
0: no, it sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> and I was like, awesome how it's written out. I mean, this yeah.
0: thing is really nice.
1: <laughs> and I was like, so I started like, you know, so I like, I do the whole like phoebuscartel.com. Is it available? Yes, it is. Phoebus Cartel LLC, is this available? Yes. it is. So I just started like, just getting all of the assets together. This was like four years ago. No plan for it whatsoever. I was just, I was like, one day this will happen. This one Mm -hmm. day this thing will come to life. And I don't know what that means. I didn't know what it meant Um, until the day that Pretty Lights decided to take a break. And that's when it kind of hit me. And uh, I was like, the laser shark is such exclusively attached to pretty lights that when pretty lights decides to stop touring, the laser shark, uh, ceases to exist. That was kind of how I felt at the time. Um, and so, and so the birth of the Phoebus cartel and at the time it was just meant for me to kind of make a lateral move within the lighting industry. Um, I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to start working with other artists. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to kind of leave the laser shark behind with, with pretty lights and that's fine. It's, it's okay. Um, it wasn't until and it, it, you know, hindsight's 2020. 20. Sometimes you just don't know how these things are going to work out. So fast forward 18 months and I go on a tour with a young woman named Banks. Um, and, uh, Honestly, it was one of the greatest experiences uh, in my professional career. It was such a change from what I had been doing for the 16, 17 years before that, because I'd always either worked with jam bands or just, you know, whatever EDM producer thing is now. You know, it it's such a...
0: It's evolved so much over the over years too. So.
1: I, I have a hard time kind of really like... Saying, you know, or like giving it some kind of label because it just like even pretty lights itself Has changed so much in 10 years, right? So like how do you say like well pretty lights is? Derek Vincent Smith, right, but pretty lights the experience is Was this thing for a little while was this thing for a little while was this thing for a little while can be this thing Is that is but but and the list goes on and on right so Anyway, so I, I go out and I do this tour with Banks. Jillian Banks is her full name. She's a sweetheart, and she's an uber-talented person. And um, we're doing, like, large clubs, theaters, the circuits that I've been on, you know, before. And I'm seeing a lot of old friends. I'm meeting a lot of new people. But the one thing that kept happening because here's the thing when, when you're like, I toured with Steve Aoki for a little while right now, there's enough similarity between like Steve Aoki's version of EDM and Derek's version of it where you, you know, there's, there's some, uh, there's familiarity, right? So in the, when I'm touring with Steve Aoki, people know who the laser shark is fine, whatever. I don't think anything about it. Right. When I go, and I do this banks tour, I'm in a whole new world. It's a whole new group of people. It's a whole new fan base. It's a whole new audience, right? And I am just like dumbfounded at the fact that people are calling me out by name as the laser shark. And it's, it was then that it dawned on me that maybe whatever, that the, the persona and the, the brand, so to speak, uh, stretched further than I had ever really thought. Um, so because you know really I always kind of look at it as an inside joke This is something for pl fans And us, you know to just kind of laugh about and it's you know, it's how you know I'm acknowledged that the shows and that's good and well and it's great and it's fine And but I like I said, I I just kind of left it there until that tour where it was like people in the industry other fans of music all know who the laser shark or not all of them, but there's enough of them out there who know who the laser shark is. And so I started to rethink the whole approach. And uh, I was like, well, clearly I don't just leave this behind with Derek. This is who I am. This is, it's a part of me. And I guess that was just me like in my own weird modesty, just thinking like that, just, you know, just brush that aside not that big of a deal um but i guess it is and i'm learning slowly how to kind of accept it for all of its good and bad um because trust me there's both (laughs) sure so then the phoebus cartel i was like well i just started this company and i've been like putting so much effort into the phoebus cartel and what it can be but if it just like if it just dies so be it Um, Because clearly, like, if I'm working as a lighting designer, excuse me, (laughs) if I'm working as a lighting designer, um, you know, the laser shark is following me, basically, right? If Greg Ellis is there, so is the laser shark and vice versa. And And it's like this weird kind of thing. I never thought in a million years that I would ever be faced with this, like, scenario of, like, I have this persona that I'm responsible for and that I have to like consider when I'm making decisions or like, or I don't know. It's this crazy thing, you know, cause so many of us, you know, as lighting designers or as production people in general, right. We're in the shadows. Um, and there's a handful of us that get kind of plucked out of the shadows and get thrown into the limelight and whether, and some of them want it, some of us want it, some of us don't. I was always sort of a little uh, afraid of it, to be honest with you. When it first happened, I was like, no, oh, no, 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 please let's not do this. I don't want this. Like, you know, I love being this crazy person in the background who just does this really awesome thing. But like, you don't really know. It's like the, it's like the wizard of Oz. You want, you want to be the man behind the curtain, right? You don't want to step foot in front of the curtain because honestly, you're disappointed once it happens. Like, and not that, not to say that I'm a disappointed person, but like, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, uh, the mental thing about all of it, right? And uh, so, so I kind of shifted the focus, though, of the Phoebus cartel because it, and this all is happening at the same time. So this ties back into the modern mythology thing and the art prints thing and all of these different things um, where I was like, okay, well, if the Phoebus cartel isn't connected to my production work anymore, if I'm just going to move forward as Greg Ellis, the laser shark lighting designer extraordinaire, there we go. No matter who I'm working with, I'm going to push all of my production work. And, you know, and like social media gets like interwoven into all of this because it's how you advertise yourself to people. So like, you know, it used to be like, you know, you would, you know, you would let other people, at least I would, I would let other people brag for me. That was always kind of my approach in the early days, but you can't, that's not sustainable. You have to push yourself. You have to put yourself out there for people to see what you're doing. Um, And it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with that whole thing. But so I came to this realization that like moving forward, all of my production work, anything that has to do with concerts, entertainment, right. That kind of like, you know, the more like industry stuff, right? That's going to funnel down like the laser shark channel. Okay. And the Phoebus cartel is going to become the place where I get to do whatever the f- I want. And I apologize for the light. <laughs> but, um, the Phoebus cartel is going to kind of be the, it's going to be the, the like black hole, right? That's where I'm going to go and experiment. That's where I'm going to get really weird. I'm going to try new things. I don't care what people, I mean, no, don't get me wrong. I do care what people think. But in terms of experimentation and, um, and just the journey of being an artist, that's what the Phoebus cartel can be. That's the place where I'm going to go and I'm going to see what else is out there beyond what I'm already known for, beyond what I'm already comfortable with. I'm going to put myself in positions and in situations that I don't feel good about and that I don't know what to do about and I'm going to see what happens. And so that's what the Phoebus cartel has become for me now. Nice. It's a place nice. to go. And, it, 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 and it's a weird thing because at first it seemed a little contrived, but it's helped me tremendously because it's a, it, 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 helps me, um, it helps me adjust my mindset. Because as I've gotten older, there is a layer of professionalism that I do bring with me, regardless of anybody's opinion out there. <laughs> um, but when this, it's a Phoebus cartel project, all of that goes out the window. Um, and so, it's, yeah, it's, it's, this, it's this interesting kind of thing that I've developed for myself where, like, if I want to go shine a bunch of lasers into a fish tank full of toothpaste that's a Phoebus cartel project right so there there you go it's it's just a place for me to experience it's it's like what's that that's a lot of toothpaste yeah (laughs) I haven't done this yet but I've been thinking about it so (laughs) there you go so so it's six months or whatever if you see a video of lasers shooting through a bunch of gel toothpaste it's gonna be Phoebus cartel Instagram not the laser sharks (laughs) ironically enough (laughs) I, you heard it here, first. <laughs>
0: yeah, don't somebody steal that idea. We got it's a, documented. We got a timestamp. Don't steal it.
1: I think of it in this sense. Uh, no, I'm probably dating myself a little, a little bit. But uh, you remember when Garth Brooks became Chris Gaines? Yes, I
0: I almost talk about that like at least three times a month. Yeah.
1: So, in a, in, in a, you know, in a much broader sense that the Phoebus cartel is my Chris Gaines, you know, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I got a shout out, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Crump, who did the cover uh, of that album. Oh, really? <laughs> like, like a lot of Garth Brooks albums, uh, but he did that one and I will always make fun of him
1: for that. So you <laughs> can't make fun of him for that though, because you know what? He was involved in history. Like, think about it, dude. It's like, what is it now, 25 years later, whatever, 20 years later? We'll still talk about that. No, maybe not in in a positive way all the time, but it's become an iconic thing in its own right, for better or for worse. And he was involved in that, so there's something to be said for that.
0: Yeah, anytime I see somebody with a soul patch thing, just the soul patch, I'm like, ah, you're rocking that Chris Gaines. And that, uh, nobody really gets that. So, you know
1: there is that aspect. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I'm I'm all pro I actually am pro Garth Garth Brooks and pro Chris Gaines. Just do what you want to do. Try to be That's, Stardust. It didn't work out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I uh I I heard an interesting conversation. Uh it was just a couple of weeks ago. So major Howard Stern fan. And big Metallica fan as well. And they were on Howard Stern a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about their experience with Lou Reed, which is lauded as quite possibly the worst yeah. record ever produced. And they loved every second of it. They loved the experience to get to work with Lou. They loved the fact that they put themselves outside of their comfort zone and that they were able to accomplish something that they never would have accomplished otherwise. Now, all art is a matter of taste at the end of the day. So now who's to say that in 30 years from now, that that record doesn't become some magical thing that people revere because you don't know what the trends become. So like, um, what may seem like a bad idea in the moment or even, you know, five years looking back, there's still this like notion of like, if you're, if you're doing something, um, for either your own benefit or for somebody else's, the fact that you're doing it is a positive thing, it, you know? Yeah, totally. Regardless, regardless of the outcome. And they've really come to terms with that whole kind of just mentality where it's like, we're going to piss off some of our fans with every decision that we make. No matter what, we know you can't, you, everybody knows you can't please everybody. Mm-hmm. So why not just do what makes you happy and hope that enough people go along for the ride that's really all you can do at the end of the day.
0: Totally. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you later about uh, me waking Lou Reed up from a nap. So, <laughs> it's a weird, so I actually woke him up at the mor- in the morning, but not from a nap. <laughs> so I'm going to pull out a question from one of our listeners. This is a question from Jimmy. Um, he wants to know how do you preserve analog elements and approaches while still adapting to advancements like VR?
1: Um, <laughs> so, I actually just uh, partook in this exact experiment. Oh, nice. So, I was involved in the Infinite Playa VR streams for Burning Man a couple of weeks ago. Um, some of my visuals were used in the, on the Mushroom stage uh, <laughs> for a handful of artists. Um, now... Let me start by saying analog video synthesis is generating audio via electrical frequencies, right? But at the end of the day, we still capture it digitally. So infusing all of this chaos behind me Into a digital art form is happening every time you see me perform, whether it's on an LED wall, whether it's on a projector, whether it's on your TV screen through a computer, it's all being now you're going to lose some of the nuance of the beautiful things that happen. One of the things that breaks my heart every time I perform, when I look at one of these stupid little TVs right here, how beautiful it looks and how it doesn't look the same in front of everybody else. Yep. I'm the only person who gets to see just how good this stuff really looks. And so, um, the short answer is for the VR stuff, when you, I can record my outputs to a movie, and then they, I hand it off to the wonderful, magical science nerds of the mushroom stage. And they import those videos into their little VR experience. And there you have it. Because um, really, at the end of the day, we're just creating, you know, whatever the, 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 the thing is. And you capture enough of its essence that it stands out in the digital realm, regardless of whether it's in virtual reality or just on a video wall or whatever the case may be. You can tell more often than not when something is created from an analog video synthesizer versus if it's created on a computer, you will lose, you know, you know, on a good day, on a good day, I lose probably about 10% quality that, that true analog essence. I would say I'd probably lose 10% of it on a bad day. If I don't have my stuff together or if, you know, whatever, the adapters just aren't playing well or the computer, whatever, you know, cause it does evolve every like, that's one of the things that I love about the analog systems is that it really is like a living, breathing organism. It has its own like mentality and it has its own like nuance, like a a great little side story here. A few years ago, when I first really started getting into this, I, uh, I took a trip home to upstate New York for the winter. I literally packed all my stuff up in my car and I went, and I stayed with my parents for like, eight weeks in the dead of winter. And uh, they own this old um, like general store that had been vacant for a, for a couple of years. And so I was working on this music video for Break Science um, called... Uh, I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> it's off the grid. It's off... <laughs> name of the song isn't as important as the name of the album because that was what inspired the video so the name of the album is oh it's cruise control there we go okay uh the name of the album is called the grid of souls and so i had this idea to create a grid of mirrors and then i uh i would create this video content and I would project it onto the grid of mirrors and it would only be mapped to the grid. So all the lines in between, there was no video content. Right. And so it looked like you were looking into these mirrors and then like, you know, so this was the visual representation of the grid of souls. Um, and I built this whole thing up in this old general store, no heat in the general store. So we're talking central New York in January. No, thank you. (laughs) No heat in there till four in the morning, every night working on this and loving every second of it. And I'll tell you what, my analog system loved it even more than I did. Oh, I'm sure. Because <laughs> it was 10 degrees in there and all that stuff, like every little knob and everything, like it was like, it was like going from like a Nintendo to a PlayStation 4, like the, like the resolution of every turn and the like, the ability to really shape and mold every frequency change and all of these different things was mind blowing. I've never had so much control over the system hmm. as I did when I was in a 10 degree room in the middle of January in upstate New York. And, and it looked be, like, I just, I cannot describe it. And I don't suggest doing this, you know, cause it sucked fight is a thing yeah I mean there was a lot of, I, I had a little space eater next to me, so I was you know I could get by uh, wool socks and whiskey are both very very useful in those situations <laughs> um, but yeah, it was uh you know there's always this aspect that like when you are converting analog and it's the same thing happens with audio it 's the reason why uh vinyl has become. The, the, the king of the music world once again because people are, are, are looking for that quality and they're, you know, and obviously the packaging is a big part of it, but like, really at the end of the day, the true music fans who really love listening to music are going to invest in a good record player, a good receiver, and good speakers and you're going to play it non-vinyl because there's just no denying that quality. And now, not to say that it's a higher fidelity because that's not always the case. It's just, it's quality. The, the pleasure of listening to that medium is greater than any other medium in a lot of people's opinion. Um, now, I feel the same way about the video aspect. I don't like watching television on a 4K TV the same way I do watching it on my 32-inch Sony to television. I like the I like the warmth. It's the same way. Like, I don't know. Is there gonna be a video version of this released? There's not, it's audio, but we can select well, video stuff if we need even, even if you took a screenshot and you compared our environments right now, like you live in your studio has a more a sharpness to it and a, and a, and a higher contrast ratio and like all of these things. And I'm sitting in this dark amber cave and it's very much like if you, like you're kind of in a, in this like weird, you know, example, you're kind of the 4k TV and I'm kind of the, you know, the old tube TV from 1996.
0: I got a little tube TV right there, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, you
1: know, I'm talking about like the, the way that the light emits and like, and also the softness, the way that the, the way that like the tones are presented on um, the way that your eye actually receives what you're seeing is so much more pleasant to me when it's watched in analog. You know, I've got a massive VHS collection around me and during the day when I'm like answering emails and stuff, this little guy over here is playing VHS tapes and I'll just turn around and I'll watch it from time to time. And like, there's just this, the aesthetic to me overall, you know, the ability to improvise and the, the ability to create through this system is only one aspect of what I love about analog video. Right. The, the end result, the actual presentation of it, the idea that like, um, you know, not everything has to be in high definition because life isn't high definition. You know, there are, there are. Uh, has definitely proven that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and like, you want you want there to be this like naturalness to things, and this 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 overblown um, desire for like sharpness and contra. Like, and honestly, like you know, like you think about like the societal kind of uh, unrest that we're in. It's like that 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 in a weird way, the contrast ratio is so much greater. Now, I'm not saying that like 4K, 4K TVs are the result of social unrest because maybe they are, who knows? But like, you know, it's just like everything needs to just have a little more warmth and a little more softness to it, you know? That's, that's really what I'm going for. I like it. I'm,
0: I'm with you there. Yeah, you know, the, the way that you and I met, it was through analog synthesis or, uh, you know, video synthesis. I made something that I made for me, and I, like, posted a picture of it. And you were the first person that, like, reached out to me and was like, dude, I would buy that. And I was like, what? I just, <laughs> myself, I just thought, you know, I didn't want to drill into something. So I made these little, little dinky things. And you kind of pushed me to... Uh,
1: Let's see. Where are they? Oh, here it is, right there.
0: Do you see it? No, the mic stands in the way, but I I trust that yeah. it's there. That's yeah. awesome. Well,
1: I had to ditch a couple of them because I finally got my second vessel. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. So I've got the I've got the ports now in the case itself. Yeah, it's, that's what those
0: are behind. Yeah. Those are I got four.
1: So yeah. Oh. Um, t- t-
0: t- <laughs> <laughs> but I, st- I still use the the sync modules. They still. Yeah. I've got another case down here. Hasers have actually come in really handy. I was
1: stoked when you sent me those.
0: (laughs) Oh, nice. I send you some more. I got, I have a, we have a laser cutter at the school. And so I go and I just use it. So I'm like, I have access to one. And you know, I, the goal was not to make money for me whatsoever. It was just
1: like, I made it for myself.
0: And then other people were like, I want this. And I was like, all right.
1: That's, I mean, that's how a lot of, you know, a lot of things come to exist. I found there's a good example. Oh, so like, you see how my vessels are kind of propped up on an angle here a little bit? Huh? So, um, these little stands that this dude made, they're basically pedal boards. That he, or they're, they're angled stands for pedal boards, right? All it is is plywood, and then same kind of thing. He's got a little 3D printer, so he prints these end caps, and then he can print you different angles that you want your thing at. Nice. And uh, I found him on reverb. He was like selling them through a reverb shop, but originally he had just made one for himself. And so a couple of buddies come to his house. They're like, dude, how did you get your pedal board on that angle like that? And it's like solid, you know? And he's like, oh, he's like, I just made it. And he showed him. They're like, dude, that is so brilliant. And he's like, and now he's like considering quitting his full-time job because he's selling these things out of his garage, like wildfire. And he's starting to make other things. And like, and that's, you know, and that's how businesses are born. It's like, you have a good idea and you see it on shark tank all the time. It's like, I was just trying to fix a problem that I had in my life. That's it. And then other people are like, well, I have that same problem. I want one. And then more people want them. And then more, you know, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, This is awesome. I'm making, you know, whatever, a hundred thousand dollars a year selling this stupid thing that I came up with while I was in the bathroom or whatever.
0: (laughs) No, it was awesome. You reached out to me, I can make some for whoever, you know, and it's it's pretty uh it's pretty gratifying to see people buy them and I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize I thought it was a Rob problem, not a everybody else is doing that. So
1: uh, I've I tell you right now, man. I wish I wish I had it's it's interesting to me because as much ingenuity as i have i am terrible at creating solutions for problems like actually creating them i will find solutions but i can never for some reason and it's like this weird hang up that i have i think i don't know i'll see other things that other people are doing and i'll modify them mm-hmm. but to actually be like i'm going to make that or i'm going to try this thing like i i It's never occurred to me. It's never actually happened for me, I guess. I don't know. And it's like, I'm doing all of these interesting things and I have all of these very interesting problems, but I can't ever seem to solve them. (laughs) Give
0: me a call. We'll we'll solve them together. I got you. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right. That concludes the first half of the Greg Ellis interview. Make sure to come back next week for part two. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. You can find links and images from today's guest on our website, rimcad.edu/ forward slash remotely creative. Don't forget, our guests also want to answer your specific questions, which can be submitted to remotely creative at rimcad.edu. That's R-M-C-A-D E-D-U. Make sure you subscribe to Remotely Creative wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Special thanks to our team here, Rachel Marie Schaefer, Chris Daly, Mel Kern, Neely Patton, Josh Smith, and Madeline Austin for making today's episode possible. Thanks everyone. Take care of yourselves and each other.